Get ready for a week-long celebration of music, community and fabulous fun with Joy Radiothon 2024. Joy has the largest collection of rainbow podcast content in the world and you can help keep us out loud and proud by donating during Joy Radiothon 2024. Just go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. Mark it in your calendars because Joy Radiothon returns June 1st to 7th and remember, we all flourish with joy. Get your motor Fender Bender on Joy 94.9 Revving up the weekends with news and views on all things motoring afternoon. You you must be a football hater. This is Daniel Gardner on Joy 94.9. You are listening to Fender Bender, an hour of all motoring madness. Thank you so much to the fabulous people on Critical Hit. Another excellent episode from those guys and also expert panelling because that was me. If you could tell my vibes coming through on the airwaves there, that was me. I've already been in the studio an hour. Misjudged my toilet breaks a little bit, so it's going to be an hour of crossed legs for me and motoring madness came up, so stick with us. This is Fender Bender on Joy 94.9. Fender Bender, guaranteed to leave skid marks? Gross. And good afternoon. My name is Daniel Gardner. This is Fenderven on Joy 94.9. How the devil are you out there? I'm assuming because you're listening into this week's hour of motoring madness, you don't like football. If that's the case, then that makes two of us. Well, hopefully I've got more than one listener. And I'm also joined in the uh, studio by a regular favourite of ours, the fabulous Kez Casey. Good afternoon, sir. Good afternoon. How are you doing? I'm very well. Uh, Not interested in the sports ball? Not in the slightest. Excellent. So we're here to talk about cars and nothing else. For the next hour, this is strictly AFL free zone. If you're out there and you're enjoying the afternoon doing something other than football, give us a shout. 0427 Joy 949 is the text, or you can email on air at joy.org.au. Very nearly fell over my own tongue then, didn't I? But we're not just in the studio together, Kez. We are joined by someone else, someone very special, someone very very dear to Joy, an old favourite. Uh, you know how we normally start with the news? And then we go into stuff, you know. Well, we've got the. We're going to start with the best news item of all. We've got an exclusive we news have, item. Absolutely it's huge. Welcome to the studio, everyone. The fabulous Hannah. Hannah, welcome back. Oh, hey. Hey. Oh, she's so nonchalant. Now you're back because you've got a show coming back, haven't you? Oh yes. Um, you know, can't keep away from it. That's absolutely right. So I'm back as of next week. Tell with us with a brand new show. It's called Cute. It is. Going to be an hour of uh, alt, pop, queer, pop, rap, R&B, just a whole lot of sexy tunes. Excellent, excellent. Because you used to do Little Fish on uh, Joy 94.9 before you went to the fabulous Triple J. And, yes. And now we are, we're, we're very lucky to get you back again. We're very happy to have you. So you'll be on next week from 5, straight after Fender Bender, yeah? Absolutely. Very good to have you back, Hannah. Absolutely say that sincerely. But we've got you in the studio because we're going to start the news item on Fender Bender with a very special story from you. Are you car crazy? Then join us online, like Fender Bender Joy, on Facebook or follow on Twitter. So, Hannah, remember when we, yes. used, to, when we used to do the breakfast show? We did a couple of items where I was trying to teach you to drive. Mm. Right, this is a and driving show. No, I wouldn't say fail. I would just say, you know, required... Or I did. Required more work. You were, okay. you were an excellent student. In, there's an asterisk at the end of that. There's a small <laughs> print at the bottom. Was Dan an excellent teacher? Um... 
I don't know. I sort of tuned out a lot of my surroundings, including what was happening on the road, and just kind of went into a state of shock. So anyway, I don't know whether it be good student or teacher. It's irrelevant because the unthinkable has happened, and Hannah passed her driving test. Yay! Unbelievable. First try. They call me first try, Han. Excellent. So you're now out and about on our roads. Are you now a complete overnight petrol head? No. Oh. Um, I have a very dented car. Uh, what? It's the poles. They get near you <laughs> when you're trying hang to on, drive. Hang on, hang on. Pole, I'd heard about the tow bar incident, but this is a different one, is it? Oh, yes, yes. Oh, no. But those pesky poles, every time you're trying to do a parallel park, they always creep up on you. I have, I, a, I have a suggestion. Give your mirror a little pat, you know? Bu- bubble wrap. Just wrap your car in bubble wrap. I that could, could actually, do that. I quite like that idea. You've seen those cars going around dressed up in AstroTurf and stuff. Yeah. I quite like... You look like a character out of... What's that film? Dude, where's my car? You know, the Zoltan like, bubble wrap intergalactic suits or whatever they're called. No. <laughs> no? No. What do you mean, no? No, you don't know what I'm talking about. No, you just... All oh, right. Okay, what you're talking about. <laughs> All I know is that I've got a lot of dents on the side of my car, but generally I'm, you know, experiencing the independence I've been promised for years. Well done. We are very happy that you're out and about on the roads, how you succeeded. Um, and it's, a, it's a white master too, if anyone's wondering, to, to avoid. <laughs> Steer clear of white master twos for at least the next few months while Hannah finds her feet. Or wheels. Congratulations, though. Thank you. And very, very good to have you back on Joy. Make sure you listen in next week, everyone, for Cute. That's from 5pm next Saturday. Yes, well, listen in, text in, get gonna, involved, get cute st- with me. Are you going to stick with us for the news for the next uh, few minutes, Hannah? Oh, sure. You are listening to Fender Bender on Joy 94.9. Okay, so last week we have been covering the scandal, which is Volkswagen and their wanton disregard for emissions regulations. They actually, if you were listening last week, we were talking about this big story globally. Um, They deliberately installed software into one of their cars that would mask the emissions and make them way better only when they were being tested. Uh, Now, the... um, the issue was initially only in the US where they found the problem or the deliberate deceit uh, and it's now um, cascaded down to Australia and we have our own uh, version of that now. The Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, ACCC, is putting the pressure on Volkswagen. They say that Audi has weighed in also with 2.1 million cars worldwide. Some of those will be here. There's Volkswagens here and there's also Skodas with 2 litre diesels here which are blatantly flouting emissions laws. What are we going to do? What's going on? I mean this is potentially huge isn't it? Kez? It is potentially huge and this morning in fact uh, the Volkswagen Group of Australia, so Volkswagen passenger cars, commercial vehicles, and Skoda, as well as Audi, both put out releases saying uh, an immediate sales stop of the affected vehicles will take place uh, until they find a solution. So at this point, there still isn't a remedy, but they are suspending the sale of those cars for the time being. Now, for those listening who might own um, diesel, two-litre diesel versions of Audi's, Volkswagen, Skodas and commercial vehicles, don't worry, it's not going to affect you too much in the immediate future or long-term for that matter. Skoda or VW Group will look after you uh, and there's nothing dangerous about the car, is there? It's just, it just means potentially that it's actually producing more emissions than it should. There isn't. So there's no safety issue with the cars at all and uh, both manufacturers, or Audi and Volkswagen Group, have both said that you know there's no safety issue with the cars, so you can still use them as you were uh, without any problems. Uh, it'll be weeks, if not months, though, before they get in contact with you to let you know what the solution is going to be. Obviously, they're still developing it. I'm sure they're working around the clock on that. 
but at this point in time, they haven't got a immediate solution to the problem. And the question is, what can you do about that? I mean, if you then start reprogramming cars to behave themselves under all conditions, potentially you might be damaging the performance of that car. And then you've got a customer who's really unhappy with their car because you sold it with this many kilowatts and torques, and now something it doesn't have anymore anymore because you've had to reprogram it. So you potentially have very, very un- unhappy customers on your hands. Now, this is a... A completely unofficial thing, but if you read between the lines in Audi's statement today, they say that vehicles that are complied to European 6 emissions compliance aren't affected. Okay. Only those that are complied to European 5, which is an older standard. Now, potentially, and I'm not saying that this is the case at all, those vehicles could, through a software update, be upgraded to European 6 compliance. There may be hardware changes involved as well. That won't dramatically change the power and torque, but it could solve the problem for them. Now, whether that is what they do or not, I don't know. But like I say, reading between the lines in their statement today, that's an interesting little uh, step around that appeared. Mercedes and BMW have both uh, come to the party and said they do not do the same thing. They have not cheated uh, the system and their cars comply completely with all emission standards. Um, do we believe them? At this, Look, I can only imagine that Currently, uh, the EPA in the United States and other environmental agencies around the world would be furiously testing every other vehicle to make sure that they're compliant. So far, nobody's returned any evidence that says that other vehicles aren't. Uh, so we're going to have to take them on face value, I guess, for the time being, uh, you know, innocent until proven guilty. So it's, uh, it's probably nothing to panic about from other manufacturers just yet. Hannah, as, as a consumer and someone who doesn't, frankly care about cars mm, uh, yeah. welcome to fender bender the motoring show i'm so Twitter. glad i'm here um would this bother you like if you if you had a car that had had software in it which made it deliberately belch out too much pollution is it something that a would put you off the brand or b bother you at all in any way am i an environmental person well you tell me are you an environmental person oh right if it was me yes because I like the environment. But if I didn't like the environment or care about the environment, then I guess not. Do you think that, I mean, do you think the people out there just uh, wouldn't a bit... No, nah, I don't think... Okay? I think... Wait, was I told that it was going to do this? No, you just found out. Oh. I like this role play. It's good. <laughs> um, <laughs> I guess I would, you know, be mad and post on Facebook about it, but not really do anything about it in real life. That is often the case with most things, isn't it? Really? I mean, if no one's died... Look, we've got... Little the t- armchair activism, really. Just act outraged and then carry on. <laughs> okay. By the way, I would hate to be in charge of Volkswagen's Facebook page right now because there will be a lot of armchair activists posting a lot of comments. Absolutely. Yes, well, as we know, there's been lots of management shakeups at the top of Volkswagen Group Global because of this scandal, and it's only set to get worse and, and go on. The, gr- the greatest thing about this case is it keeps us in a job for the next year, doesn't it? I mean, Absolutely. this isn't going to go away anytime soon. There's no shortage of... Well, as I say, there was a statement released this morning which pulled me out of my Saturday morning stupor, and I had to write about it. You, oh, really? <laughs> I saw that come up as well, but I'm not as committed as you, so I didn't write it. Um, stick around. We have loads more coming up after this break. You are on Fender Bender with Joy 94.9. You're on Joy 94.9. This is Fender Bender. If you want to get in touch, if you are someone out there who's doing something other than watching some sporting event, I don't know, give us a shout. 0427 Joy 949 is the text, or you can email me and Kez in the studio on air at joy.org.au. I promise, clause, small print, to read out all of the really interesting messages. Well, actually, frankly, we're scraping the barrel today. You know, most people at the football, so give us a shout. We are talking all things cars here. Uh, Before the break, we were talking about the emission scandal that is ongoing with Volkswagen. 
Sticking sort of on topic, though, um, independent Senator Nick Xenophon has is, is gone on record saying that he believes that some uh, car manufacturers are perhaps being slightly dishonest with their stated fuel economy figures. Um, he has listed BMW, Jeep and Mitsubishi as exceeding their actually published economy figures by between 25 and 133%. I didn't think 133% was a thing. Isn't it? Can't you go more than 100%? Anyway, uh, if that's the case, then there could be subject to about $50 million worth of fines in it for offending companies. Um, what do we think, Kez? Is this, is this, wh- wh- why, what's the importance, and do we suspect that he's right? So ultimately, uh, every car has, as a, a legal requirement in Australia, has a sticker on the windscreen that shows you the fuel consumption that you can expect to get. Now, the problem with that sticker is it's done in a laboratory test. So it doesn't necessarily reflect what you're going to do with the car in a real-life driving situation. Ultimately, because every car is tested in the same way, you should be able to make a purchasing decision based on the figure on the windscreen, but you may not necessarily get that figure on the windscreen in your actual driving. And there's a bunch of reasons why that's the case. You may have the car loaded differently, road conditions, weather conditions, even the temperature of the fuel can affect the car's fuel consumption. So... While the idea of making sure that car makers adhere to a standard that is repeatable in the real world, it's a very difficult thing to do. Absolutely. And, and we've had, how often have you had a press car that, you know, it'll, it'll state, it's got some fantastic fuel economy figure and you go out and you drive it. And although, you know, most journalists are not necessarily all lead foots, but we have to drive the car in a number of different manners to, to, to evaluate the car. Uh, frequently, you know, with some of these new diesels and things, we were talking about diesels in the last talk break, but frequently they come back with a figure which is miles above what they state the figure is. And, and can it really be that different? As you say, you know, the way you load it and the way you're driving it and conditions all affect it. But can it really be that different? Ultimately, it shouldn't be that different. So buying a product based on the label on the windscreen uh, would be a little bit like buying a loaf of bread and expecting to find the ingredients are printed on the back of the packet and discovering that they're not. So, you know, it's important that those figures are are representative of what you're going to get, but how you go about making that the case, um, because there are so many variables, is going to be a tricky thing to do. But uh, we've seen examples in the United States. Uh, Ford was one, Kia and Hyundai uh, were another group of companies that had grossly understated their fuel consumption uh, and were held liable as a result. So uh, I think automakers need to be under that pressure to be fairly accurate in what they reflect. Do we need a new system? Is that, is that potentially a way of alleviating this problem, that it's misleading to customers? So perhaps we need, uh, you know, there's frequently, for those who don't know these figures, there's a, they'll give you often three figures. They'll give you a freeway cruising speed, uh, f- cruising economy figure. They'll give you an urban, uh, which is frequently the worst. And then they'll also give you a combined figure. And it's often the combined figure which is quoted. Are they just not combining the right types of driving for an accurate figure? The test itself is, I think, really odd. It doesn't match anyone's real driving whatsoever. So, for example, your city driving, which they call urban, uh, is a 13-minute test. Uh, My God, you're well-informed. I didn't know any of this. (laughs) It averages a speed of 19 kilometres an hour. So, it's essentially meant to be the same as sitting in peak traffic. Yeah. Uh, it spends six minutes stopped or at idle, uh, which includes 12 stops and a peak speed of 50 kilometres an hour reached four times. Right. Sounds really complex. Doesn't even remotely match what you're going to do in real driving. I'm the very highway impressed test, that you know this. The highway test is seven minutes at an average speed of 63 kilometres an hour. Now, if you're doing 63 kilometres on the highway, you're going to get yourself in a lot of trouble. Absolutely I'm pretty right. sure the police would be very interested in why you're asleep at the wheel. <laughs> Uh, it has a maximum speed of 120 kilometres an hour, which 
you can't do in yes, Australia yeah. outside of the Northern Territory, and it spends 40 seconds at a standstill. So how that factors into real-world driving, I have no idea, because it's not exactly. even close to so what you would So if you're out there and you're doing 60-odd kilometres an hour on the freeway and then you just decide to stop for 40 seconds, how is this a realistic gauge of economy? So it looks like the, uh, the sticker on your windscreen, which is based off that driving cycle, really does need an overhaul. You heard it here first. We're pushing for it at Fender Bender. We're going to talk on. Uh, we're going to move to international news now um, because there's a motor show happening quite soon, isn't there, Kez? Uh, in Tokyo, there is, and there are some exciting things coming out of that show already. The one that has really got my attention is Mazda has made an announcement. They've released a teaser shot this week of a very um, low light. A profile of a new coupe that they're releasing. It's uh, apparently going to be their new sports model, but the the big news with this is they're saying that the rotary engine is returning with it. Now, uh, the rotary engine is a very special, very unique type of engine that works in a totally different uh, way to most of the engines under your bonnets. Um, it's uh, the, the rights to the engine are owned exclusively by Mazda, so no one else is allowed to use it. It's been plagued frequently with reliability issues and fuel economy problems, um, but they nonetheless they haven't killed it off, and apparently it's coming back in the uh, what everyone is saying is going to be an RX8 replacement. Mm. Uh, it's Mazda's dedication to the rotary engine is enormous, and the mm. fact that they have had engineers like the last rotary car was the RX8, which was a four-door coupe. Uh, went out of production in 2000 and... The Encyclopedia of Cars sat over there. Yeah, I have no idea. Pretty much. About 2012, the last one rolled out of the factory. But by that stage, sales had dropped off tremendously. Yeah. The reason it went out of production is because it could not meet emissions regulations. Uh, so too thirsty and too polluting. In that time, Mazda has had a team of engineers working on that engine in the background. Um so, obviously, they're not giving up on it. And it makes for a really great sports car engine. doesn't deliver a lot of torque, but does deliver huge amounts of power out of a very, very small, light engine. It's massively so, rewarding to drive, isn't absolutely. it? Absolutely. And sounds like nothing else as well. The fact that they haven't given up, they haven't just gone for a turbo four-cylinder or a turbo six-cylinder like everyone else has done, uh, really shows their dedication to that that point of difference. And And I think we'll probably see without a grain of knowledge about what it's going to be like, we'll see some of the biggest advances in the rotary engine than we've ever seen before, particularly because it now needs to be so much greener than it ever has before. There will be, as we speak, there will be the rotary fanatics around the world will be putting together a small shrine ready for the unveiling of that car. It is so, the engine is so celebrated amongst tuners all over the world. They love them. They're extremely um, tunable. You can get huge amounts of power out of them, and only from tiny capacities. Like uh, the, the 1.3 litre in the RX-8, which, as you say, finished up in 2012, that produced like 150 kilowatts. 150, no, 177. 177 out of a 1.3. It's all pure revs. Um, it's a fantastic engine. The reason we really like it on Fender Bender is its correct name is the Wankel engine. So it gives us an excuse to be filthy without actually being filthy. I think it's German, so it's probably the Wank. Don't ruin it. Do you say, do do you say Weber carburetors? No, of course not. It's a wanker. <laughs> and that's what makes it so much fun. Excellent. Uh, moving to Audi now. Audi RS3, another really eagerly anticipated car, is here. It's finally landed on Australian soil. Um, this is another good news because if you're talking engines, um, we all predict that the five-cylinder, Audi's wonderful, historic five-cylinder turbo, is probably going the way of so many extraordinary engines because of emissions again. But no, they've brought it back again in the RS3. So this is based on the Audi A3 sensible hatchback. Very nice little car too. But under the bonnet, it's got a uh, 2.5-litre turbocharged five-cylinder, which makes no arguments, please. 
the best sound in the world. It Absolutely. is my it's my favourite sounding engine of them all, and its character is just wonderful. Now, I've not driven the RS3 yet; it's only just here. I didn't do the launch, but I have driven other cars with that engine. Audi um, RS Q3 has the same engine, and it's actually no, it's in a lesser state of tune, I think, in the RS Q3. It is a little bit, yeah. And even in that car, an SUV, it is wonderful to drive. So I'm desperately excited about this new RS3. Are you also, Kes? I am. Uh, to put it into perspective, the RS3 is a car that's roughly the size of a Corolla and almost three times as powerful. So it's, That is a brilliant way of putting it. It's uh, going to be a hell of a lot of fun. All-wheel drive. Uh, it's got a DSG transmission, but it should be very quick and it should handle very, very well. Excellent. I'm very excited. Uh, moving on to another potentially new model that may come here. I was chatting to uh, Toyota earlier in the week, and I had a little chat with them about a notable omission in their lineup. Toyota can cater virtually everything on Australian soil in every segment, but the one thing they have an omission of at the moment is the burgeoning compact SUV segment. So everyone is rushing to that party as, as we speak because it's such a potentially lucrative segment. We've got some really good new offerings, such as Honda's HRV, um, Mazda CX three has recently joined as well and people are, are falling over themselves they love them i mean i personally can't understand it but don't get me started on that because that will turn into a tirade and a whinge from me anyway toyota doesn't have one in that segment it used to have the rav4 but that's kind of matured and got a little bit bigger and it doesn't quite fit in the compact segment anymore they have released a concept called the chr and this does the trick doesn't it it does it's well it's it's now actually up to its second generation as a concept so the first one was a two-door that essentially had no roof it was just body sides a sliver of glass and uh, a pretty wild looking thing the second generation toyota promises is a lot closer to what we'll see as a production car but it's not a production car just yet however it looks almost the same as the two-door the original concept they've managed to sneak two extra doors in so it's now a four-door or five-door. Excellent, yeah. Uh, yet, uh, it's got a slim little glass house. It's uh, styled quite like a coupe. Enormous wheels and uh, looks really, really unusual. Uh, if you look it up on Google, you'll see what I mean. How it really is, though, entirely overdue for Toyota. They need something in this segment. Uh, it's the fastest-growing segment in Australia at the moment and around the world. So it'll be really interesting to see what they can deliver with the uh, the final version. And the key thing here, as you mentioned, it's it's styling, I think. I mean, it looks like Toyota, perhaps, forgive me, you know, if you're listening, Toyota, you know, you might be guilty of being a little bit conservative with your styling in some other um, segments. Uh, you know, there's some obvious exceptions to that, like the 86, which is a beautiful sports car. Um, but certainly with the CHR, that is an extraordinary looking thing. If it makes it through to a production version, looking anything like the concept, then this marks a new direction from Toyota. Uh, it, it'll be appealing to an entirely different audience they'll be going for a younger crowd and it looks it looks cool i mean i'm, I'm not afraid to say that it's a it's a good looking toyota i feel a bit like the nissan juke is squarely in their sights absolutely with this one. yeah very quirky looking thing similar size it'll do the same job and it will go after the same customer um one other thing we want to talk about out of t uh, tokyo is um some suzuki concepts that really caught your eye didn't they Chris? these are really cool i uh i kind of like suzuki as a brand because they always seem to be fighting an uphill battle They've got uh, three new cars appearing at the Tokyo Motor Show. The first one that they've shown is, it's actually a production car. It's the Ignis, which sees the return of the Ignis name. Yeah. It's a, it's a smaller than compact SUV that will slot in alongside the Swift. Last time the Ignis appeared here, it replaced the Swift. This one will go alongside it. Uh, and it is pretty much styled like an Esky on wheels. It's a boxy, <laughs> upright, but very cool looking uh, little hatchback. 
The other two, though, are awesome. Uh, one of them is the Mighty Deck. Right. Uh, now, anyone that's familiar with Suzuki will know the Mighty Boy. Which is one of my favourite cars of all time. It's Utterly ridiculous, but so, so likeable. Tiny, tiny little ute. And it fits into uh, Japan's K-car regulations, which are incredibly compact. They have regulations on engine size and output uh, and get a bunch of tax benefits as a result. The Mighty Deck looks uh, a bit like a Tonka toy. It's bright yellow. Uh, again, it's got a tiny, tiny little tray in the back. <laughs> virtually useless, one might say. Virtually useless. And it seats four people. Those rear seats fold down. The tray can be made longer. You can fold down the front passenger seat and put a surfboard in something that is roughly the size of a suitcase. It's uh, definitely an interesting direction to go in, but it looks like the Mighty Boy will make a return. Whether it wears the Mighty Boy name or the Mighty Deck name remains to be seen. Chances of seeing it in Australia are close to zero yeah. because of its tiny, tiny size and complete and utter uselessness. But Japan loves quirky, so they'll be right at home with it. Fingers crossed we just get it anywhere in the world because we love the look of that thing. Stick with us. We're going to be back after this short bake. You're on bake? Short bake? No, this isn't the cookery show. This isn't the baking show. This is Fender Bender. Before the break, we're talking news, and now we're going to move on to a new product that has joined the Australian market. It is an icon in our markets. People love this car, and it has now arrived in its eighth generation. If you are an absolute petrol head or an off-road head, you will know, of course, I'm talking about the venerable Toyota Hilux. Kez and I did the launch of this car earlier in the week, and it was perhaps one of the most significant launches of the year, I would say. This is Toyota's, uh, one of their key models. It's their second best-selling model, isn't it? It uh, it wavers a little bit between Corolla and Hilux, but at the moment it's in second place. So, uh, yeah, it's a big, big deal for Toyota. It's been around for, as I say, eight generations. The newest one apparently is even tougher than ever before, and it's um, way more refined. Um, now, the significant news with this one, before we get into anything about what the car's like is if they manage to even increase their sales a little bit, this could go to be um, their number one seller above Corolla. And if that's the case, it'll be the number one seller in Australia. So we're looking at potentially the most popular car anyone buys in Australia. And I don't doubt for a minute that it will get there. A lot of farmers, a lot of tradies waiting for this car. Uh, The last one came out 10 years ago. So there's a a pent-up bank of buyers just ready to strike as soon as this thing hits showrooms. That really says something about the popularity of a car. If it's been around for 10 years and yet it still outsells all of the competition and nearly every other car in the Toyota lineup, that's a pretty significant car. Now, we drove this car um, in a very special place. Now, down uh, near the Great Ocean Road, there is a place called the Australian Automotive Research center it's owned by uh what's it lindsey fox lindsey fox yeah Uh, and it's a top secret development center it's basically disneyland for cars um you have so many different types of tests you can do there's a high speed oval there's on-road off-road and they um commissioned the place for us to try the new hilux because this is a car apparently that will do everything could it do everything could do everything that we tried Absolutely. It was pretty surprising, wasn't it? It was. They had it scrambling over jagged rocks. Uh, We had a, was it a 40 degree incline up and down? Yep. On loose gravel. 
absolutely terrifying. Uh, I have never been overwhelmed with such a great sense of needing to brake than when you're heading down a 40% descent. So you have to put your uh, your blind faith in the car. It's got hill descent control, which means it will keep itself at a moderate pace heading downhill. All you want to do is jam the brake pedal, but the car does it for you. So you've really got to just put your faith in the technology and let it go. It did that really well, didn't it? And then also you say rock, we had rock hopping as well, which is, you know, over these horrible granite boulders. Um, the new car has got uh, even more underbody protection, which is now also thicker. Um, so it can actually take quite a, quite a beating, can't it? It's pretty it rugged. It's very rugged. So it's uh, a thicker section chassis, more underbody plating, more wheel articulation, which means you'll be able to get it even further off-road in some far, far more terrifying terrain than you ever have before. Uh, and it's also uh, no, way tougher, as, as you say, but it's also supposed to be a little bit more refined on the road. And that, for me, was the biggest surprise. It's no surprise that a Toyota Hilux can go off-road, because they always have been. If they couldn't do that, there'd be something very wrong with the recipe. What really surprised me was when we got on to more um, high-speed, unsealed roads and also normal roads. The ride quality is unbelievable. And I, I think of all the, the one-ton utes I've driven, nothing can come close to it. It was eerily silent almost sort of magic carpet-esque you know you know those those roads where um you've got a single lane and then either side there's an unsealed bit so you can get over and let another car come across in the other direction on those when you went on put one pair of tires in the dirt you, i honestly couldn't tell there was no steering feel through that you've gone on something soft on the left side there was no noise in the cabin. There was no gravel rattling in the arches. It's a really well-screwed-together thing. Really surprising. It really is. And Toyota did something very interesting with the development of this Hilux, uh, which instead of putting a four-wheel drive engineer or a commercial vehicle engineer in charge of the project, the man that headed up the development of the new Hilux uh, was previously in charge of the Toyota IQ, which is completely a different. tiny, tiny little city car like the Smart, so they brought him on board to make the car more refined, to make it more space efficient on the inside, and ultimately to really sort of turn the Hilux on its head so that it wasn't so agricultural and that it did all the things that you just described, that it's quiet, that it's smooth, that it's comfortable. And from what we experienced, it looks like he's done the job. Do we think that, uh, that you know, we had some really good rivals coming in the form of sort of like Ford Ranger is now here. That's an excellent package. Um, Mitsubishi's new Triton is here. Um, Mazda BT-50 is on its way in a facelifted version. Volkswagen Amarok. The list is, is really long in Australia. Do you think it's just going to beat those into submission again now it's got its new, um, all new construction and, and look? I think Ford Ranger is going to pose the biggest threat. Yeah. Because that new Ranger is very impressive and it looks... It does look cool. Fairly yeah. cool, you yeah. know, and particularly in the high-spec XLT and Wildtrack versions. Wildtrack is great. tough as. Wildtrack's so amazing. Big. And Toyota doesn't have a, uh, a model. Wildtrack is essentially an appearance package. You get wheels, you get roll bars, you get a different coloured grille. Toyota hasn't even bothered to come up with anything to address that. No. But I don't think they need to. And they've got a heap of accessories. There's bull bars, there's wheels, there's sports bars, there's, you know, all sorts of stuff you can put on to dress up your Hilux with. And that's a really good thing with the Toyota, isn't it? Because people love to dress up their four-wheel drives. And if you're going for an original um, equipment Toyota accessory, then you know you're going to get something that's really, really right for the car. For example, this is the one I really liked. If you specify a particular rhubarb with a winch, um, that extra weight changes the behavior of the car. So if you buy that package, they'll actually change the front suspension springs as well just to make, make it sit absolutely perfect. They do. And all of those accessories are developed in line with the vehicle. So while the car's going through all its testing, all those accessories are going through their testing because they 
their Toyota Genuine accessories, they're covered by the same warranty as the car. So, so know, it's I, important I, stuff to know. Absolutely. Now, I've saved the best news until last, and that is that although you think of Toyota, you know, they have Australian manufacturing at the moment, but it's, it's profoundly a Japanese brand, is Toyota. Not the Hilux. The Hilux is the most, in my opinion, the most Australian car you can buy. I know what you're going to say. I know all those all those people out there are going to be saying, Dan, what, you've completely lost your mind. Holden and Ford, obviously, are the most Australian. No, they might be made here and they might be developed here. But the Toyota Hilux, this one, spent six years being developed in Australia. It spent more time here doing about 650,000 kilometres. Um, that's and, and In the rest of the world put together, it only did 400,000 other parts of the world. It is it is it has Aussie blood coursing through its veins, that Hilux. Australia offers some pretty unique conditions, so Toyota decided that because it's... Well, Aussies are rough on vehicles. We destroy them. <laughs> Our tradesmen are, you know, a pack of rough nuts that just drive their cars <laughs> into the ground, apparently. So Toyota did a lot of the development work here. There's actually two variations of the Hilux. There's a, a a standard version and a rugged version. The rugged version goes to markets like Australia, to Russia, uh, a lot of developing markets where a car's going to get rattled to pieces. Yeah. So the development for that rugged version, the heavy-duty Hilux, was carried out here, and that was led by Australian engineers. Absolutely. They also do another one which I really like, which is the mining spec vehicle. How cool does that look? The mining spec cars are so cool. So pretty much any company that offers a ute here offers a mining pack, and they're built, obviously, with the needs of that industry in mind. So steel bull bar, steel tray, uh, reflective tape package along the side, Yeah, and they just work really well like they look the way you should look it looks it looks purely functional doesn't it, it? Does. you take a very functional car in its normal uh guise and then you dress it up in some really cool things like flashing lights fluorescent tape and it's even got a little ladder to get in and out of the, now, the tray we may have laughed at that ladder a little yeah bit. <laughs> okay okay we it's, did. it's got a fold up ladder in the tray so it tucks out of the way when you don't need it but obviously as an ohns requirement there's a handrail and a ladder that folds out so that you can jump in and out of the tray without going face first into the it ground. It looks so silly, doesn't it? It's like a little hand. Was it you that said it's great because you pull alongside like a creek and it's like your own little diving board? You've got board your own and... diving board, yeah. yeah. it's perfect. It, well, I love that feature personally, but it does show that OHS has gone absolutely nuts. Um, the other thing which is going to make this car really attractive to so many people is in its last uh, generation, the seventh generation, it was available as 26 different variants or 21? 26. Um, in this generation, it is available as 31 different variants, and that is five different body styles, three different levels of spec, two and four wheel drive, manual and auto. If you can't find a Hilux that is right for you, the Hilux is not for you. It is, you're spoilt for choice. It starts at around about 20, just over 20 grand for the two wheel drive workmate, which is the tradey sort of car-like version uh, with a little cab and it goes all the way up to a very posh one with a dual cab, four wheel drive, automatic transmissions, four different engines on offer. Really, you, you're spoilt for choice. The Hilux, therefore, Kez, I feel, is as good as ever. No, actually, I'm going to go on stage. I'd say this is probably the best Hilux we've ever had. I would, I'd have to agree. You are listening to Fender Bender on Joy 94.9. If you want to get in touch, 0427 Joy 949 is the text, or you can email me on air at joy.org.au. Before the break, we were talking about uh, Hilux. It's a venerable car in the Australian market. But now we're going to move on to something a little bit different. Now, a while ago, I was in uh, Germany, in Europe, for the uh, Frankfurt Motor Show. And while I was there with my hosts Hyundai, they arranged a very special little road trip for me to do. Now, it involved a car called the iX35, which we get in Australia. It's a very popular um, sort of mid-sized to sort of compact-esque SUV. Uh, you can get it as a petrol or a diesel. But in Europe and certain other parts of the world, you can get it with a hydrogen fuel cell. 
Mm. Now then, this special piece of equipment takes hydrogen gas, the lightest element in the universe, and it combines it with oxygen and turns it into electricity, real time. So this car effectively drives and behaves like an electric car, but you don't have to charge its batteries. It does have one as a sort of buffer, but all of its power comes from a compressed bottle of hydrogen gas where the fuel tank goes. Now then, we did this trip because... A lot of nations in the world are a little bit anxious of alternative energy. We've got unusual forms of energy and fuel sources, electric cars. Um, but when you say to someone, you know, this car will do 500 kilometers, but then it needs recharging for two hours. People say, well, that's no good, because if I'm going to Sydney or wherever, I need to stop somewhere. It just doesn't work. People are inherently a bit silly and stubborn. They don't like being able to change or having to change their, their behavior and their routine and their patterns. What the iX35 fuel cell does so well is it drives like an electric car, it emits absolutely nothing other than water vapour from its tailpipe, and you don't have to change your behaviour in driving a car at all. It drives like the iX35 um, normal SUV, and you just refill it with hydrogen gas, which takes three minutes. And that's the key thing to this car. You don't have to stand at a charge station for 20 minutes to two, three hours. It's filled up in exactly the same time it takes to refill a petrol or diesel car. We drove this car from Venice all the way over the Alps into Frankfurt. It took, we took three days to do it. It was 1,000 kilometers. And do you know what? The most fascinating thing about the car was its normality. It is the most normal car I've driven and the most excited I've ever got about a normal car because this, this, this car and this drive prove that hydrogen with fuel cells as an alternative energy source for cars works. Simple as that. And hydrogen is potentially the next wave in green motoring. So we've seen electric vehicles, there's, uh, you know, a few creeping onto the market. Tesla is probably the most identifiable. With a Tesla, you can now drive from Melbourne to Sydney. To do that, at the very minimum, you have to stop for half an hour for what they call a supercharge, and that'll top your battery up to 80% of its capacity. It's an hour to get 100% charge. So to drive Melbourne to Sydney, let's say you can do four, 500 Ks at a time. You've then got to stop for half an hour to an hour each time. Ultimately, with hydrogen, what you'd be able to do is your 500 kilometres, stop for three minutes, exactly the same as you would to fill up with petrol and get back on the road again. Absolutely right. And that's what people really want. I think deep down, people really want to do the right thing. They want to use alternative energy. They want to use... Hydrogen is fantastic, you know. It's completely clean. Zero emissions, only water coming out the tailpipe. But they don't want to really, you know, work too hard for it. But if you give them an alternative like this, which they really don't have to compromise in their lifestyle or their behaviour at all, I think people will really embrace it. Problem, of course, though, Kays, is infrastructure, isn't it? And at the moment... There isn't any. No, there's one hydrogen refueling station. It's in Sydney, and coincidentally, it's at Hyundai's headquarters. Hyundai's because, headquarters. Because they looked at it. They said, well, look, the government is doing nothing here to, to um, promote, fund, and encourage alternative energy. So we're going to have to take matters into our own hands. So they did. They, at the cost of millions of dollars, they installed and commissioned a proper hydrogen refueling station. So they've now got one iX35 fuel cell in the country. They can keep topping up as much as they like. Problem at the moment is that car is only available as left-hand drive. But... They're not telling us what the next one is called or what it will be, but we know it's going to be a replacement based on another SUV. Could be sort of Tucson-based. It's not going to be called the Tucson. It's not going to be called an iX35 fuel cell, but it will hopefully be in right-hand drive. We spoke to Hyundai, and they said, yes, uh, right-hand drive version is on the cards. If that's the case, then potentially we could see some interest and some light at the end of the tunnel. And, of course, overseas, Hyundai's not the only company that's developing a hydrogen fuel cell. Uh, in Europe and in some states in America, Toyota will be introducing what they call the Mirai. Yep. 
Uh, and Honda has just announced that at the Tokyo Motor Show, they'll be showing, uh, they haven't given it a name yet, they're just calling it the FCV, the fuel cell vehicle. Yeah. Uh, which, again, so neither one is an SUV like the, the Hyundai version. Uh, both sedans, but both hydrogen fuel cell, uh, which, you know, looks like being some potential for the future. And both of those vehicles, the Mirai and the FCV, are production cars so they will sell in those markets where they're available and very limited availability but you will be able to walk into a dealership and buy one the same way you would a Civic or a Corolla. Now the key thing here is um, strength in numbers so it's great that we've got two other brands that are coming to the market with hydrogen fuel cell vehicles because another thing that Hyundai is very outspoken about is they say that we have to work together on this they need other manufacturers to come to it they need anyone's help at all to make this um, to make it happen. If we at the moment it's very sort of infant stages of the technology, but if we develop fuel cells at the moment, that car is only 100 kilowatts. It's not the fastest thing in the world, but it could make it up one side of the Alps and down again. So it's you know it's usable. As this technology um, increases and develops, it's, be- it's going to become more powerful. It's going to be more efficient, um, and the range is going to boost. At the moment, it's at 500 k's for a tank. Um, but if we can get behind this and give the encouragement by by buying cars like this and showing interest, then that will bring on a new era of motoring, potentially. And it could be one of the most important changes in automotive um, technology, well, ever, frankly. Mm. And, and all of that, one of, the, one of the biggest changes in automotive technology, but zero disruption to the way consumers use vehicles. And I think that's the really important thing. It doesn't mean that if you forget to plug your car in overnight, you can't go anywhere. It doesn't mean that you have to stop for huge amounts of time. It simply means that you use your hydrogen fuel cell vehicle exactly the same way you would a petrol or diesel powered car. Exactly, exactly. Well, um, if we get any of these cars in the country, um, any more than just the one, the iX35 that's in Sydney, then um, we hope you embrace this technology. It quite frankly could be the way of the future. Fender Bender, guaranteed to leave skid marks? Now then, Kez, we love you on the show, um, but we've never been very personal with you. And now I'm going to take a moment to be very personal. Everyone has to pass the initiation test on Fender Bender, and that is talking about your daily drive. And we uh. all, we're all car enthusiasts here. I've talked about my guilty little pleasure, which is a certain 1999 BMW 3 Series Coupe, which I still drive occasionally, even though it sits at the back of work, wondering what it did wrong and looking sad. What do you drive? What's your car? Come on, you can tell a lot about a man by the car they drive. Uh, it's a sedan. Yes. It's a silver one. Is that all we're getting? That's all you're getting. Is no. This, is this embargoed information? No, it's not embargoed information at all. So my personal drive is, uh, it's, it starts off sounding fairly commonplace. It's a Mazda 6, uh, but it is the MPS version. Oh. So in 2003, Mazda launched uh, a high-performance version of the Mazda 6, uh, oh, which is a turbocharged all-wheel drive, six-speed manual. So a normal Mazda 6 is a naturally aspirated four-cylinder engine, front-wheel drive, yeah. this thing. They basically went through and re-engineered the entire car. Uh, they replaced front and rear subframes. They put in an entirely new drivetrain. Wow, they developed serious? an engine that was fairly unique amongst the, the range and uh, built a performance car to kind of take on the Subaru Liberty B4. Yep. Uh, and, and in a way, the uh, Volkswagen... Passat. Oh, yes, of course, um, yeah. The, the R36. R36. Oh, my God, we just did it in stereo. Are we the same person? Wow. Stop <laughs> touching me, Kez. So, uh, ultimately, when it came time for me to buy a car, I didn't want something that everyone had, and everyone seemed to have a Subaru. So, I somehow found myself staring down the barrel of 
Mazda a 6 Mazda MPS. 6 MPS. I love this. This is brilliant. You, I, I'm, you know how when you ask people what they drive, sometimes you, you almost don't want it because you might be a bit disappointed and then you'll think of them differently. I was, frankly, a little bit worried about this one. But now I, I hold you in the same esteem as I always have. That's a really, really interesting car, as you say. Like, technologically at the time, what, how old is it now? Uh, so mine, it's a 2005, so 10 years old. So 10 years ago, no one was doing that, really, other than the obvious emission, which is uh, Subaru. You look at manufacturers now, everyone has an all-wheel drive, turbocharged, four-cylinder in their ranks somewhere. But that, back then, 10 years ago, was really unusual. The thing I love most about it, though, is that they didn't decide to go nuts with stripes and massive wheels and, you know, decades and huge spoilers it's actually one of the best sleepers you can it's get on incredibly the- incredibly subtle so yeah. next to a normal mazda 6 you'd barely spot it it has a reprofiled bonnet yeah because there's an enormous great intercooler sitting directly underneath the bonnet atop Lovely. The it has different side skirts different bumpers like every performance version has and a tiny tiny little lip spoiler yeah other than and that- that's it but it's that's nice. So when you see one, it's kind of it doesn't shout at you. I'm an MPS. It just it looks a bit muscular, you know. And it just is subtle. You know, it's different to the rest of the Mazda Six lineup. But it's just you know, it's a little bit. It's sophisticated. It's a it's a hot sedan that is has it a is. level of sophistication. And it was ultimately uh, Mazda did a really weird thing with it. It was sort of pitched as a uh, a businessman sports car. Uh, with like little built-in Easter eggs, like as soon as you pull the handbrake, the rear axle disconnects with the all-wheel drive system, so that you can drift ah. it. No, serious. So you can hang the tail out, and then as soon as you let the handbrake down again, power goes back to the rear wheel, and you get enormous, <laughs> enormous slides, which, of course, you would never do on public roads. But I do take mine to the racetrack. That is wonderful. And I have to admit that I sort of thought that was a bit stupid until the first time mid-corner I pulled the handbrake, let it off, and all of a sudden all this power jumps to the rear axle, and oh, you wonderful. can slide the thing for miles. It's great. That is cu- that's so cool. That's almost as good as the new Ford Mustang's burnout button. It's actually got a, um, what do they call it? That thing in the li- uh, brake lines. Lockout. Line lockout. Yeah, line lock. Um, so you can actually uh, hold on the front brakes without the rears, and you can actually just do a deliberate burnout to warm the tyres. There's obviously yes, a reason for it. Yes, you know, this yeah. is not just for making massive clouds of smoke. I love that feature. That's really good. So um, uh, what would you replace it with, if anything? I'm really struggling. Yeah, because really? Because I, I love the car. I love it to death. It's so much fun. And like I say, I take it to track days, and that is where you will get the absolute best out of it. That all-wheel drive system comes into its own. It holds the road like nothing else. You can oversteer it wildly. There is nothing else that I want to replace it with. The closest that I can get is there's rumour that Mazda might do another MPS. They might do a Mazda 6 MPS. Ah. They might do a Mazda 3 MPS, which could potentially get all-wheel drive. If they do that, I'm there. Other than that, I'm really struggling to know what to replace it with. So I'm going to have to hang on to it that for is a little okay. bit longer. That is okay. It's a fabulous card to have for the timing. And if they do announce an MPS uh, successor, you will hear about it all on Fender Bender, of course, which means you should tune in next week. You never know what we have to say. I will be off deck next week. The Fabulous Tim Nicholson coming back to hold the steering wheel. In the meantime, though, we have uh, another fabulous episode of Technogates came up next. Um, it just leaves me to say thank you so much, Kez. Fabulous to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, and thank you for listening. Make sure you stick around. We'll be back next week. But until then, do keep listening. This is Fender Bender on Joy 94.9. This has been a Fender Bender podcast for Joy 94.9, Australia's first and only gay and lesbian radio station. See joy.org.au for more details. This podcast was produced by Joy Media. You can support Joy's diverse sound and diverse community this June by donating to Joy Radiothon 2024. Go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. And remember, we all flourish with joy. Joy.